Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Imagine Melbourne with its city hustle and bustle, but the Docklands, and not with apartment blocks, but high walls with sentries. It's not a prison. Inside, it is run in a completely different way to the outside. A different social setup. You know vaguely what goes on there, but you can't get in. S.A. Jones has built such a place in her fascinating book, The Fortress. Welcome. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. <laughs> Let's set the scene first. What does Jonathan Bridge do? Jonathan is a very successful strategist within a software company. He is a shareholder. He's wealthy. He's been blessed with good looks, social position, and a family that is well-known and respected in the community. Well, even in the, recently we've been reading about interns. Hmm. These, are, these are the graduates that come in for, uh, after they've graduate, graduated. What does Jonathan Bridge call the interns? Jonathan and his cohorts refer to them as poodles. This is a quote from the book. Cute and decorative and great fun at the Christmas parties, after which you move us on and get a fresh, unsullied batch. Now, that's from one of the uh, poodles that wasn't quite happy with what happened. And she's not alone. He's, yes. Well, he's always had a great um, work ethic. You know, he has got power and authority and he's happily married. Tell us a bit about his wife. Jonathan's wife is perhaps not the partner you would expect him to have. She is not arm candy. She is a very well-read journalist. She is on the plump side. She laughs freely. She loves to dance. She has a moral compass that he doesn't have. And yet, who can account for the alchemy between human beings? There's a connection between them felt on both sides. His pickup line to her was just lovely. He walked, he, he spied her and walked across a party and said, My name's Jonathan Bridge. I'd, I'd like you to have a hyphenated name. You can choose your own. I'd like us to have two children and, um, and, but no cat. I'm, I'm just not negotiable <laughs> about the cat. <laughs> It was a great pickup line. And, and that's Jonathan. He's supremely confident. He's never experienced anything in the way of a serious setback. And he serenely assumes that good things are going to come to him. Except when, as in his terms, he comes to a psycho feminist pity party. <laughs> oh, great terms. Now, you, it, it's, it's a fair way through the book. But this is what his wife has organised for him. And She's also said that he has to do something. What is it? So Jonathan and Adalia's relationship reaches a, a crisis point for various reasons. And in order to continue the relationship, Adalia demands, I suppose, that Jonathan must enter the fortress for a the period of fortress. one year. Well, how about we hear a little about, a bit about the fortress from page 30 of... Um, Sir S.A. Jones's book. 
For as long as Jonathan could remember, the fortress had been the subject of smutty boys' locker room jokes. Pussy prison, they called it, but quietly. The laws against Vicray, speaking ill of the vake and criticising or usurping vake laws and ways, had been repealed for a long time and had not been enforced for even longer. But Jonathan had still thrilled to the jokes. Sometimes, when drunk and emboldened, his friends concocted farcical schemes to be declared as vestiae and locked inside pussy prison forever. If that's punishment, I've been a bad, bad boy. But for all that, few male citizens elected to do their national service within the fortress. What man, after all, wanted to serve women? Mm, what man wanted to serve women? Right. So who lives within this fortress? The fortress is largely populated by the Indigenous inhabitants, and they are called the Vake. They've been there for as long as anybody could remember, and at one time roamed freely across all the territory, but now have a dedicated reservation, you might think of it, that is entirely enclosed from the rest of the world. And the Vake live according to the tenets of their society, which mm -hmm. is work, history, sex, justice. But it is not a homogenous population. It also houses women who have elected to become Vake, mm. and they live there also. And I think one of the key points about Vake civilization is it is not a physicality or an inheritance that marks you as Vake. It's a state of mind. And anybody who can inhabit that state of mind, regardless of gender, can live in the fortress. And it's also populated by men who go there either because they've been sentenced by women in the outside world to live at the fortress, they can do their national service there for one year, or they can go, as Jonathan does, as a supplicant. Right. Very well put. I agree with all of that. <laughs> And still I'm reading on. So Jonathan is to be a father and is disgusted that one of the people he meets in there is a pedophile. But he must never raise his hand in anger. And when he does, as you said, that fourth pillar, justice, is forthcoming. Mm. He's questioned over truth and honesty. And uh, well, he says, no, I'm, I'm a very truthful man. And one of the vague says back, that sounds like something a cheating husband would say. I was never unfaithful in my heart. So here he is in the fortress. And, and he can't understand, you know, since infidelity is part of our problem, it just seems bizarre, bizarre to go somewhere. It would be a requirement. Yes. But, but look, he has to learn how to be insignificant. He does. Ooh. He does. He has to learn to see things differently. So uh, he meets a guy in there called Dad, who becomes his oh his what mentor mentor yeah I think so. And Dad says this is another quote from the book: "The vague aren't innocent. You're like a piece on a chessboard to them, and they have a very specific idea of what the end game looks like. Nothing here is spontaneous. Nothing." And well, Jonathan's been strategy. You know, he's head of strategy at this big company. And, of course, it's the clothing, the inappropriateness of the clothing that he has to wear. 
So when Jonathan enters the fortress, uh, one of the early scenes, you see him disrobing from his very expensive tailored silk inlaid jacket and his bespoke leather shoes. And the outfit that he needs to put on, it's called a masjithra. And the masjithra is a rather unusual material. It, it is animate and it learns, if you like, the contours of the body of the wearer and becomes almost a second skin. But what's interesting about the masjithra is it's a frock. It's a frock and it's a very short frock. And it's a very short frock. Yeah, it's very much easier for the vague to, um, you know, ask them to lift their frock, show their... <laughs> That's right. And get on with it. And so uh, the, one of the first sexual scenes is... Um, Dad is chosen right there in front of all the farm workers and uh, has sex with one of the vacs. Possibly too. Absolutely. Now, that's the first one. And there's many more sexual encounters through this book. It's hot reading, but all of the sexual um, sexual encounters have a reason. And I thought this was great. Um, The... There was one where um, Jonathan's ended up covered in bodily fluids and they're not his own and he's quite disgusted by it. Another when he has to have sex with older and unattractive women and he doesn't even want to think about it. (laughs) Um, and, And one when he actually has to have sex with a virgin. Yes, look, you're quite right. There are quite a few sex scenes in the book, but I, none of them are gratuitous. They, they are there oh, for yeah. very specific reasons to prompt the reader to think about what real consent looks mm. like, what objectification is, and I think even the question of whether men actually can be objectified. Because, I mean, you hear men say things like, oh, I'd love to be objectified. If somebody wolf-whistled at me, I'd think that was fantastic. And in this book, you see a man who is fundamentally objectified and it's not the steamy experience you necessarily think it's going to be. He often talks about feeling being taken advantage of. <laughs> <laughs> and feeling ancillary. He uses oh, the word yeah. ancillary at one time. Mm. Um, he has a woman who is sort of is under his, uh, he is under her charge, mm. Mandalay, and right from the very beginning, she, he knew she wasn't his type, and but something comes as a mocking whisper to him all the time. Do you think I come to your bed because I find you irresistible? This <laughs> goes through his mind. So he's, you know, he has to say, I submit to being used as a sex object. With the inability to ask questions, Mm. this was a strong thing through the book, wasn't it? Mm. Part of the experience of being a supplicant is opening yourself out to the vague way of seeing. When Jonathan disrobes, he quite literally has to leave his sense of himself and his place in the world behind. And for a while, there's just a vacancy. And it's a very difficult space to inhabit. Mandalay says to him, you have to learn to see through our eyes and this is going to take time. And for a man used to being at the centre of the universe, that passivity and that vacancy is a profoundly unsettling experience. And, you know, in in one of the the key scenes in the book uh, where he is required uh, to have sex with one of the characters it 
it is profoundly distasteful to him. It questions all the morality he thinks he has, the ethics he thinks he has. And yes, learning to see through vague eyes, it, it's a difficult process. This encounter was with a young girl that he, he had created history and history is such an important part of this because this is what the Vaics believe in. They've got a long, long history as, as the Indigenous culture there. And so he's been storytelling. She's a storyteller mm-hmm. and they've been storytelling together. And he has chosen t- for her to have her first sexual encounter. So he has to perform perform, you know, and uh, not just, oh, you know, tick it off. But, oh, it, it's really quite touching. We talk about this and of course, another word that has come through in everybody's social knowledge is misogyny. Mm. <laughs> well, where do you think that fits in? Uh, on every page. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I very consciously constructed Jonathan not to be the devil incarnate. There are things about him that are likeable and you couldn't at any point say he's broken a law and he himself says, I, I've never forced myself on anyone mm. and, and this is something he can say and believe it. The place he inhabits is morally ambiguous. He can tell himself that the poodles that he's enjoying at the work Christmas party are consenting. Mm. None of them say no. Um, often they throw themselves at him and he takes this as his due and never questions um, the power dynamic sitting behind that. And so you would say it's sort of a a benign misogyny. You know, I think it was um, Arendt who, who coined that term, the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. And, and often it is banal. It isn't the slithering serpent that you can point to readily and say, ah, ah, yes, that is bad. Another quote. Jonathan says, it says, I can't carry the can for every shitty thing that man has ever done. But (laughs) he he could look at his own, couldn't he? (laughs) Well, he never got to meet the woman. That's the the head of the vague, who could see into your soul and your essence. But we do get to see Ollox. It was oh, do yeah, yeah an Olock's a good thing to see, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it really is. The Olock is a bird native to the area, um, who's very in tune with natural forces, mm. and they do they do play a role in the plot. They sure do. They fly away when a storm's coming, and this is the climax to sort of <laughs> no pun intended. Jonathan saying no to sex and the disappearance of a child and a pedophile. Look, um, I think I'd like to use Damon Young. Now, Damon Young has been on the program a few times. He's a philosopher at, at the School of Life. And he has said about this book, Unsettling and unashamed. The fortress is a damning judgment of patriarchy and a meditation on the labours of atonement. Good read. And tell me, what did Better Reading say about this book last night? Uh, You'll forgive me if I'm still a little euphoric, but uh, their review says that this is one of the most important books to come out of Australia in the last 10 years. And we're talking a book about the book The Fortress by S.A. Jones. And one very quick question. I think I might have time. How did you get this book published? It is so (laughs) hot. It is steamy. (laughs) Relevant? 
Yeah, look, it was interesting because um, my agent, Jacinta DeMaze, picked this up straight away, loved it. Um, getting it published was yeah, a problem. Not a breeze. Yeah, so look for it. It's published by Echo and uh, S.A. Jones, The Fortress. Well, I take a rather more genteel approach to sex and sexuality. Some say there is a world of difference between the country and the city. But wherever you grew up, you can't escape the facts of life. Now, the young character in Mira Robertson's novel, The Unexpected Education of Emily Dean, certainly learns a lot when she is dispatched to rural Victoria in 1944. So, Mira, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Very now, happy to be here. The reason why Emily moves uh, to the family property or the property associated with the family is discreetly hinted at, but such things weren't spoken of in that time. Why is she having to be... Why, why does she leave? Well, you're right, it is It is quite subtly done, but I think that we do learn through hints and allusions that her mother has had some kind of breakdown. And in those days, really, if your mother couldn't look after you, then you had to go somewhere where others, where family could take over. So her father is still in Melbourne, but he's he's a clergyman. He's got things, important things to do. And so she's sent to stay with, with the rallies in country Victoria. I mean, the suggestion sometimes it meant cleaning the house from top to bottom or abandoning housework altogether in order to campaign on behalf of the orphans of the world or the rights of merchant seamen. So it's sort of this manic... Yeah, absolutely. Possibly. Yeah. It's, it's not really gone into, but then what you have is the sort of uh, social infrastructure which depended largely on the family to address a lot of these mental health issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're in a world where family, you know, is absolutely central. And when we do get to the farm, or as grandmother says, we don't say farm, Emily, we say property. So they were very conscious of their class position. She discovers a world where there are also, there's there's cousin Eunice, who perhaps isn't even a cousin at all, but has, has, has ended up there because she's fallen on hard times. And, you know, people get taken in and and yeah, this well, is Eunice has world. come to help the grandmother <clears throat> because the grandmothers had uh, children later in life, so to speak. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and this yeah. world is um, at the moment, 1944. There's a predominance of women, which sets the sort of tone of this property. So we've uh, who have we got here? Grandmother Della, cousin Eunice, Lydia. I love Della uh, because, and if I can uh, find the right quote. Della began to serve everyone. Della's the cook. Della's the cook, yeah. Della began to serve everyone, moving round the table like a ship in state, her plain cotton dress straining at the seams. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength, she intoned, setting down a plate with a slice of dark mutton, boiled onions in white sauce and a small mound of peas in front of grandmother. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, came next as Eunice was served. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, a plate for Lydia, my buckler and the born of my and the horn of my salvation. And my high tower, the plate slid onto the placemat in front of Emily. Della tapped her on the head and gave her a nod in greeting before moving on. She delivered the last plate to Uncle Cess just as he sat down. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. She paused, surveying the room as if daring someone to speak. Nobody did. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. With that, she sailed off. Back. To the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I think I think people have really loved Della as a character, and I must say she was she was an absolute joy to write. Um, 
And uh, um, and what we touch on there is actually that Della, of course, is Catholic, as as are some of the other characters in the story. But the family is is firmly Protestant, Protestant. and Presbyterian. And in fact, grandmother's whole. Uh, she's given Della a copy of the King James Bible because she believes that the priests have far too much power and they are the, they are the ones who control the, the, the narrative, if you like. But it harks back to some very old traditions that were extant at that time, 1944, um, the, the way of behaviour. I mean, even the meal that's served there, mutton, meat and two veg. Yep. Which is basically how I was raised in in some ways before this explosion of other cultures, etc., changed our diet. But it was the way of thinking back then. Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps it wasn't such a bad diet. Bit boring, but you know. <laughs> but you've all you, again the, this notion of the predominance of women. Nineteen forty-four. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and one of the things that I wanted to do. I mean, I should say that the that the world I've created here and why I wrote this novel was really that the kernel of it came from stories that my mother told me about her extended visits to her grandparents' farm in the well property in the Western District of Victoria. And although I've completely fictionalised it, there there are little nuggets of truth in there. Um, There are characters that sort of do have some elements of, you know, that came from those stories that mum told me. For example, there is an um, Italian prisoner of war on the farm and, and he, that was true of, of that era and she was there at her grandparents' property when they were um, prisoners of war and also other characters like Aunt Lydia who is, you know, pretty good with a shotgun and not bad at killing Go- rabbits. And, rabbiting, etc. Yep, yep. And and just to sort of segue back into what you were saying, David, that the war was a period where with all the men away, the women did things that perhaps they wouldn't have been doing otherwise. Well, the social expectation gave room uh, because of necessity um, with the men away. The women had to do all the work, so to speak. We also then, we've got Claudio, the Italian prisoner of war, but then we've also got William, Lydia's brother, uh, who is um, wounded physically and mentally scarred as well, who comes into uh, or back to the property. So, again, these mental health issues are constantly uh, present without necessarily being addressed. You've sort of got to rely on the lifestyle and the the stability of family to be able to address it all. Yeah, well, people, of course, didn't name things in the same way, um, I guess, and, and, and they weren't spoken of. And, I mean, it's actually funny because... I don't think I've actually reflected on the fact that there is that thread of, of mental health in the book until you actually pointed it out. I mean, it is clearly there because William isn't only wounded physically, but he's really struggling with what he's gone through. This, of course, all makes the book sound rather weighty and heavy, and it's quite the no, opposite, well, I well, think. But <laughs> Back to the, to the main character yeah. then of, of Emily. She's coming into this environment, and she's sort of becoming aware, shall we say, of her sexuality. But coming from um, a clergyman's household, there is a sort of expectation, yeah. and we see that 
uh, in terms of clothing and presence. What happens there? Ah, yes. Well, well, in a way, Emily's exploration of her sexuality, which is one of the threads, quite mm. strong threads in the book, happens through the, the other characters like Claudio, but also happens through literature. She's, she's heard that the most romantic hero of all time is Mr Rochester in, in, Jane, in, Eyre. in Jane Eyre. And so she's dying to get uh, her hands on a copy of the book. And, and and she gives hints to her parents that that's the book she would love to get for Christmas. And when she sees a book-shaped parcel under the, under the Christmas tree, she's, she's absolutely, you know, terribly excited. Of course, it doesn't come to be. Instead, it's a second-hand copy of Middlemarch, which, which she begins to read and feels that she's never, ever going to get to the end of. But, but she also gets another book sent to her from her father. Uh, she does. Later on, she thinks there's another chance that she might get Jane. Air, but unfortunately, it's the uh, Presbyterian hymnal. <laughs> it has all the good. Well, the Presbyterians had all the best hymns. Uh, that was that was the thing about. Uh, yeah, I have to say, I think that's quite true. Yeah, <laughs> I know a few of them too. <laughs> um, but we also then um, Emily comes um, well meets up with Lydia, and Lydia is more. Um, how would you? Well, tomboyish. I mean, rabbit hunting. Her ability to uh, take a situation and, and express her identity in some ways. Yeah, I think she's everything that Emily longs to be. She's, she's gorgeous, she's sophisticated, she's, well, in Emily's eyes anyway, she's competent and capable and she's kind of mysterious as well. But not beyond wearing overalls and carrying a shotgun. A- a- absolutely. She can look fabulous in a silk dress carrying a shotgun at the same time and and also sort of sexy when she's wearing her brother William when she's wearing William's old pair of pants and leather belt and a and a funny old hat and you know going out hunting rabbits mm. so what role model then is is there for Emily Della cousin Eunice Lydia grandmother we also then have uh, Emily teaching Claudio English yeah, and actually that that's a little, of course, I've fictionalised that, but in fact that did happen. You know, if you go back to the actual situation of the Italian prisoners of war on the on the properties who were who who were employed as farm labourers, of course, some of them were really keen to, you know, learn English, and 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 I think in fact one of my mother's aunts did teach one of the Italian prisoners of war how to. How to speak English, but Emily does it through literature, and she they they begin to read Henry Lawson's stories, and of course, what do they read? But the drover's the wife. The drover's wife. But yeah. Emily becomes Emilia, the sort of thing. The the Italian pronunciation it opens up a whole range yeah. of possibilities in in many ways there in terms of her uh, sense of self. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I really liked doing in the book was to sort of to take these characters who are so bound by the times in which they live. Of course, we all are, but in in that particular period of time. And she is just a bundle of prejudices and views and values that she's learnt and, and whatever. And all of a sudden, they're all starting to be just exploded. Well, well you touch on a lot of those views and values, yeah. the Catholic and Protestant yeah. divide. Um, there's the um, topic of, of communism yes. that comes in and fascism, which were issues being discussed at the time. Yep. But also then uh, Emily gets to come across um, William's ah, yes. library yes. and a particular book 
Yes. <laughs> Fanny Hill memoirs of a woman of pleasure. pleasure. Yes, and of course she's she's made this commitment to herself that she can't read any more books until she finishes Middlemarch. <laughs> but once she sees this thing that says woman of pleasure, she she just can't resist. And of course she discovers some pretty important things about her what, own body <laughs> when she starts reading The Women of Pleasure. The but Woman what of does Pleasure. she do with the book? Well, ultimately, because she feels rather guilty about what, what the book provokes in her, which is a sort of explosion of pleasure, um, we, we, we might... I won't go into it any further than that, but she, she decides that she has to get rid of it once and for all, and so she heads off across the swamp and she throws it into the, the water. But the constraints, therefore, of... I mean, the guilt is generally generated by the social expectation or which is is from the generation before yeah, so to speak yeah, absolutely um, yeah. where it's it's conserved preserved and yeah. and set in stone but this awakening in many ways is a, is a liberation and she expresses that liberation in the end she does i'm not going to tell anyone about the end the Do you dress, think, david i think we should we well, should leave that just the, a little bit mysterious the, but, we should leave the end yeah. mysterious i'm just wondering if we can touch on the dress at all and what she does to the the dress her mother gave her when she was packed off yes well so her mother I, I, her mother's a really interesting character because she's she is clearly suffering from some mania and perhaps you know perhaps a manic depressive sort of condition but she so she's given emily this dress which is I, I think, Emily, fair enough that she doesn't like this dress. But it's representative um, of certain values absolutely. of how yeah. Emily should conduct herself, uh, yep. the plainness of it, the, the constraints of it yep. in many ways. So she loathes this dress mm. and she's always trying to get rid of the dress, but she can't get rid of the dress. But right near the end, she does do something with the dress. Fair enough. She also gets a dress from Lydia. And she and 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 in a way that's right. There's a sort of a passing on or a uh, a, a kind of passing of the passing on of the baton that sort of re- represents. Well, Lydia where she opens up uh, yeah. Emily to um, alternatives, shall we say? We, I don't want to take it any further yeah. than that. Um, but also, uh, Emily's also discovering her own powers or abilities mm-hmm. as a writer, and is uh, and this is where William comes in as well. Yes, and so that's she's another thread. Getting yeah, yeah. A sort of support uh, from others as to the alternatives she might have in life. Yeah, yeah. Opening it up to a new world, and it's that, I think that's one of the other things that we're on the cusp. Australia as a country, Emily as a individual, everything's a, everything's changing. Everything's so we learn out. about. Emily's education in The Unexpected Education of Emily Dean, Mira Robertson, the author, and it was a... I'm just looking for the... because I've got an uncorrected proof here. It's um, from Black Ink, isn't it? It, Yes. It it is. And I was speaking with S.A. Jones about The Fortress by Echo. Well, David, we've got to get out of here. We've got a better, better dash. See you next week.